Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the sunshine. That Yes, it's pretty much winter at this point with the temperatures, but you gave us bright sunshine this morning. Regardless, I thank you for this place. We thank you that we have the freedom in this country to worship you. We don't need to worry about getting, uh, the doors getting kicked down and being hauled away. But Lord, I pray that we, because of that, I pray we would not grow complacent. I pray that we would not take this for granted, but that we would be focusing our lives and hearts on worshiping you, on serving you, on living for you, because we know that is the only worthwhile way to live our lives. Lord, I thank you for your word, that it always remains relevant and true and, and valuable. I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all seen law or police drama shows where there is a dramatic scene in every show, it seems like, every episode even, in which a witness is asked, is the person who committed this crime in this room with us right now? Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Okay. And the witness dramatically raises their hand, finger pointed, and points directly at the defendant and says, it was him. But apparently, according to numerous science and news websites, eyewitness testimonies to crimes specifically are notoriously unreliable. In fact, according to a Boston Globe article published six years ago entitled, Eyewitness Accounts Can Be Reliably Unreliable, since DNA testing and criminal investigations began in the 90s, a shocking 73% of overturned cases based on DNA evidence were the result of eyewitness accounts. At this point, a witness's account in a criminal investigation is treated as another piece of trace evidence, like blood or saliva found at a crime scene. Why? Because experts have discovered that things like fear, bad lighting, and the presence of a weapon can skew one's memory of what actually happened. In our passage this morning, the Apostle John records John the Baptist's last recorded words in Scripture. We started on that a couple weeks ago. We're continuing on that today. Which reveals exactly this, that any earthly human being is limited by their own finiteness and understanding. Only the one who came to earth from above knows everything there is to know about spiritual truth. So, how does this truth affect the rest of our lives from this point forward? If you remember from a couple weeks ago, we started talking about John the Baptist's last recorded words before he is thrown into prison and beheaded shortly after. These capture where his heart and mind were his entire ministry. That none of it was about him, and that everything he was in his entire life's mission was based solely on Jesus. What precipitated John the Baptist's last recorded words was a thoroughly human event. A Jewish person came to John's disciples and wanted to know why John's disciples, uh, how John's baptism fit in with the Jewish law. In the law, you were supposed to be cleansed with water, which held both a physical and spiritual meeting, after certain acts, 
every single time. And on top of that, when a Gentile wanted to swap religions from a pagan one to Judaism, they were baptized to show they were now identifying themselves as Jewish. It was unheard of, though, for already Jewish people to be baptized. Yet that was exactly what John and then this other guy from Nazareth named Jesus were doing. So this unnamed Jewish person comes to John's disciples and to ask, what gives? As John's disciples are in the middle of a conversation with this Jewish person, it comes up that about why then this other guy who John had baptized is also doing the same exact thing John's doing. The thoroughly human context is twofold. Firstly, the Jewish person making the initial inquiry is only coming at it from a finite human understanding, trying to wrap his mind around John's call to lifelong repentance from sin and turning to God, no matter how well you try to follow the Mosaic law. And secondly, John's disciples are letting jealousy start to creep into their minds and ministry. So in John the Baptist's last words, he redirects everyone back to what his entire ministry and message has always been. That everyone, regardless of who they were, needed to repent of their sin and look to the true Lamb of God, whom John the Baptist has already identified as Jesus. Jesus was always supposed to be all of what and who people needed to trust in, not John or anything John could do. And then John ends that section, which we covered a couple of weeks ago, with these famous words in John 3.30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how that must be the way we view our lives. That it's not about what we want, what we wish would happen, or what we wish didn't happen. Our lives must be all about what God wants for our lives and what his plan includes for our lives and so at the end of all of it our epitaph should only be one word Jesus he should be all that we strive for our lives to reflect now why is that why not reflect any other human being even good religious teachers or a pastor or some kind of spiritual guru John explains that next in our passage this morning. So, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 3. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, or you can look it up in the table of contents. John chapter 3, we're going to be picking up in verse 31. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you, or you can look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 3, verse 31, we read, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now in the context, John the Baptist is deflecting any attention, focus, or emphasis being placed on him. John needed to do that right off the bat since the basis of his disciples' very conversation with him is on pitting him up in competition against Jesus. That's the very last place John wanted to be in. So right off the bat, he says this. So John immediately and very quickly shoots down any kind of, of that thinking down. 
John reminds his disciples that any ministry he, and therefore they, have is given from God. And since God's mission is all about Jesus, John's, and therefore their ministry, would soon come to a close. It would soon transition away from them and on to Jesus. John would be removed from the picture altogether in order to fully transition the mission to Jesus. John already saw the beginnings of that transition with Jesus' disciples performing the same exact type of baptism ministry as he had been doing. In the same breath as decreasing himself in this transition, John increases Jesus, as in verse 30, which we read up here. In verse 31, that focus is now transitioned fully on to Jesus. Neither John nor any other rabbi nor any other prophet or spiritual leader could come anywhere close to who Jesus really is. In fact, Jesus is in a whole other category all by himself since he comes from above. Every other human spiritual leader is from the earth and can only minister within the realm of the earth, as verse 31 explains. What this also means is that every other human spiritual leader can only minister and operate within finite and limited human ability and capability, and only do things through the power that God gives to them. Within Judaism, that means that all the prophets who perform miracles, Elisha, raising kids from the dead, Elijah, calling fire down from heaven to consume a completely soaked sacrifice in front of all of Israel and the prophets of Baal, and Daniel's and Ezekiel's mind-blowing prophetic visions. King David, who was the man after God's own heart and who the whole messianic kingdom's bloodline is tied to and based on. The fathers of faith in Yahweh, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who we talked about last week. And Moses, the one who stood toe-to-toe with one of the most powerful kings on earth at the time, called forth plague after plague, called forth the splitting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, water from rocks, and quail, and spoke to God with a face, uh, face-to-face. All of them were still only earthly and human spiritual leaders bound by their own humanity, limitations, finite human understanding of the world, and sin. What this also means for us today is that even the greatest so-called spiritual gurus are still only human and of this earth. Again, Moses, who laid down the laws and celebrations for Judaism, still celebrated today. Confucius, Lao Tzu, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, and Epicurus, Cicero, Seneca, and Aurelius, all of the Dalai Lamas throughout all the years, Siddhartha Gautama, or the prince-turned-Buddha, Mahatma Gandhi, Muhammad, any imam and ayatollah, all of the popes throughout the centuries, the early church fathers, Joseph Smith, and any shaman, Wiccan priestess, mason, or even pastor are all what? They're all human bound by their own humanity, limitations, finite human understanding of the world, and sin. There is only one being 
who is human, but not only human, and therefore bound by humanness. This being is both human and God, both beings and natures in perfect harmony, and therefore in a category all on his own. And this being, as John the Baptist notes here, is in a category all of his own because he's the only one in all of earthly history who comes from above. Again, the term above is used as a euphemism for heaven and therefore the very presence of God. Right off the bat, as John says in verse 31, this places him in transcendence and preeminence over any other human who has ever lived or ever will live. He who comes from heaven is above all. Not only is this person Yahweh, but Yahweh come to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. The Apostle John already explained this in the very first chapter. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the context of this morning's passage, John is telling his disciples that they had no right to put him in the same category as Jesus. Therefore, they had no right to compare him with Jesus, much less elevate John past Jesus and call Jesus' ministry out. John has already said that anything he had, anything he said, and anything that made up his ministry all came from God and God alone. It had nothing to do with him. Jesus was the focus of what God was doing. Not John, not any other prophet or spiritual leader of Israel, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, or anyone from anywhere else. Anyone else, including John, was fallible, weak, and sinful. And anyone else, including John, was still in need of salvation from this other person in his whole other category. Anything Jesus said was not from his own musings or observations about life. It was all straight from the throne room of heaven. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. That's the cruel irony of it all. Everything Jesus said was pure, unadulterated truth straight from heaven, but humanity wanted to listen to everyone else. Why? Because everyone else is what made sense to us as humans. We wanted to control our own earthly and post-earthly lives. So anything anyone else said that was in line with this, we latched onto it. That's why every religion, faith, or spirituality sounds eerily similar, because it all is. But what Jesus brought straight from God was radically different. It wasn't based on anything we could do. No amount of sacrifices, both animal or those you could make in your life. No amount of prayers, candles lit, goodwill, good works, or just trying to be a good enough person would change any of that. It wasn't based on anything we could do. You know what that is? That's scary. It's scary for you to not have any uh, 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 control over that. It's scary because we don't want to relinquish control over our destinies to someone else. 
And yet that was exactly all Jesus' point ever was. To give up on yourself. Give up on your selfish desires and your sin. To entrust all of who you are and your very soul to him. And unlike human eyewitness testimony like we referenced at the very beginning of this message, Jesus' testimony is completely 100% true. For it's all only what he saw and heard in heaven before he entered the world in his earthly mother's womb. Not only that, but this Jesus told us to go above and beyond what the same God had, already, had even already commanded to do. Instead of just keeping yourself from murdering anyone, you were supposed to love everyone. Instead of divorcing your spouse for any reason you wanted, that unless adultery was involved, you were supposed to do everything you could to restore and strengthen your marriage. Instead of trying to make everything happen the way you thought you needed to make it work, you were supposed to seek the kingdom of God above all else and trust that he would take care of your every need. That's radical and that's scary. You know what all of that sounds like from a human point of view? Complete and utter absurdity. That's what it sounds like from a human point of view. Complete and utter absurdity. So it's no wonder then that as John says in verse 31 and verse 32, everything Jesus said was rejected as complete and utter absurdity. And from a human point of view, has anything changed in the past 2,000 years? Not at all. Anyone who God has not opened the spiritual eyes of yet sees everything we believe in Jesus for as what? Absurd, stupid, uneducated, falling for the opium of the masses, unindividualistic, small-minded. We've seen the same response time and time again from the time the crowd yelled crucify him all the way up through a second ago. And it will continue to be this way until the great white throne judgment when all those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life who never accepted that everything Jesus said and was was the absolute truth will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. This is no joke. Nor anything to mess around with. If there's anyone who won't get off the fence and never makes a decision about this, they will face the same destiny as those who don't care at all about Jesus or think he's stupid and faith in him is stupid. But there's good news that goes right along with this, verse 33. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Those who accept everything that Jesus said and was and is, set an unbreakable seal that God himself is true. To us as followers of Jesus, having had our spiritual eyes open to the truth and being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that's obvious. But what is that also saying? It's also saying that anyone who rejects this is also rejecting God and all of who he is. You can't have one without the other. You can't claim you, if you claim to believe in God, you must also believe Jesus' testimony. You see that? If you claim to believe in God, you must also believe Jesus' testimony. If you don't, then you don't actually believe in God. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 33. 
And you will suffer the same fate as the staunch atheist. This is all incredibly powerful and earth-shattering, and it's not my words. I'm glad it's not my words. These are exactly and only what we've just read. But if you accept this good news, that you cannot earn and have any sort of impact on your own eternal fate, and accept that all of your humanity and sin earns you is death and eternal darkness, and accept that therefore you need Jesus' death and resurrection for you and on your behalf as your only hope, turning from your sin and asking forgiveness for your sin, making Jesus the king over the rest of your life, what you're ultimately accepting is that God is true. That's what you're ultimately accepting. To believe anything less than that does not accept God as true. You either have to take all of it or you have none of it. There's another type of sealing that happens when we come to this place in our lives. Not only do we seal God and everything he revealed in Jesus as true, but God himself seals us as his. We'll talk more about this next week, but we receive the Holy Spirit as the seal from God that we are his children. And Jesus is preparing our heavenly home for us, even as we speak. Again, not my words. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When the Bible talks about a seal, it's using the image of an official document being rolled up, hot wax being dripped on the outer edge, and the image of a ring from the official pressed into the hot wax, thus sealing that document. It could therefore not be opened by anyone but its intended recipient by breaking the wax seal at the right time. In this imagery of 2 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 1, when we come to God in acceptance for who Jesus is and what he did for us, God presses his royal seal into us, claiming us for his own. What that also promises is that we will be fully redeemed at the perfect time when our recipient, Jesus, comes back for us. That seal is not just a metaphorical image either. It's a literal seal. You might be thinking to yourself, I don't see anything. What on earth are you talking about? It's a literal seal, but it's inside of you. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the seal of God in our lives and our souls is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, coming and making a home within us. Again, we'll talk more about all the gifts and promises that go along with that next week. But for now, what we have to establish in our hearts and minds is that the indwelling Holy Spirit in our hearts is the promise 
of full and complete redemption and restoration someday when the trumpet of God blasts and we're caught up to meet Jesus in the air along with all of our loved ones whose souls he brings back with him. The Holy Spirit, as a seal on our hearts, reminds us of one fact constantly, that we are children of God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now, we get to call him Abba, Father. The most intimate term for for a, a child's relationship with their father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit is not only the seal that marks us for our eternal home, but he also reminds us every day, it's okay, you're a child of God. You might need some reminding of that today. The world, its evilness, and Satan's kingdom of darkness will stop at nothing to keep you down, holding you under its thumb, rendering you powerless, weak, and ineffective. They will continually try to make you hate yourself and perhaps your life. They will continually try to keep you bound by the chains of addiction, despair, depression, and spiritual attack. They will keep distracting you with the fear of what's going on in this world, in our families, and in our bodies. But the Holy Spirit is also hard at work within you. You are not any of the things Satan in this world thinks he rules, says you are. What you should be doing, what you should be focusing on, or what you should fear. You are a child of Almighty God. You are a child of the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. You are a child of the Redeemer. You are a child of the eternal provider. You are a child of the Father of love who will stop at nothing to remind you of that. You have been sealed by God himself for his heavenly home, his purpose for you, and his redemption of all of who you are. Block out the noise of the darkness of this world with the truth and the light of God. You are his. This is both a source of peace, but this is also a call to live out that sealed life. We are but strangers in this world, passing through on our way to our heavenly home, so we must live and act like it. The Apostle John, the same author of this passage we just read, wrote in another letter of his, one that we're discussing in youth group currently, And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, what is that person really? That person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Know you are sealed and show others you are sealed. 
Because you are sealed, you are a new creation with no more ties to the sin of your old life. Because you are sealed, you have been filled with the spirit of power and boldness, not a fear of anything in this world, whether it be personal or national, the economy, your own personal finances, the government, Omicron, or anything else. Because you are sealed, you are here to minister to the world, not be conformed to it. Because you are sealed, you have a purpose and eternal meaning. Because you are sealed, you have a heavenly home waiting for you. And because you are sealed, you are a child of God. Let us all live that life sealed by the power and redemption of the truth of God out loud. Not held back by anything in this world. Why? Because we know who our Heavenly Father is. And that's all we need to know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for these very powerful words that John relates to his disciples and the Apostle John relates to us today. We thank you for the seal of the Holy Spirit. He seals us for our heavenly home, the the down payment on our heavenly home, the deposit, but he's also constantly there reminding us of who we really are. We are your children. Lord, that's a call to live like we are your children, to obey your commandments. But that's also a reminder that we don't need to fear or be anxious about or be torn down by anything in this world because we are your children and you fight for your children. So let us find our peace and our spiritual rest in that. And let us go out from this place filled with the power and boldness of that same Holy Spirit, taking this light to this very dark and depressed world. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.